0: My name is Brock, and this is the Dungeon Masters Toolkit Podcast. Welcome everyone. On this show I interview Dungeon Masters of various systems in order to get inspiration on running tabletop RPGs. On today's episode I talk to Liam about Powered by the Apocalypse games, dice pools, partial success mechanics... If you're interested in spicing up your perception checks, we've actually got a good section on that as well. We talk a little bit about foreshadowing and then some useless information. Don't forget, if you're interested in being on the show, there's a form you can fill out in the show notes. You can also join our Discord server so you can see when I post new interview slots and possibly get in on a game or two. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share this episode with your favorite DM, and let's get started. Today I have Liam Chung here with me, also known as Thane on Discord. Liam, why don't you give me a little bit of information about yourself and how you got started in tabletop role-playing games?
1: Uh cool. Yeah, hi. Um so I'm Liam. Uh I uh just graduated from college actually, so I'm just like starting my first job in like this first couple weeks here, but um I got started in tabletop when I was in high school. I had an art teacher that was like... He basically turned his art room into like a board game slash tabletop lounge, basically, after school. And so he got me into it, even though I never even took any art classes. But yeah, basically, um, I just kind of... My friends would go and I would watch them. And I was like, this seems really cool. And then I ended up trying to run my own game, which, I mean... I don't even think it needs to be said, but it went it went horribly. Uh, um, but then, you know, time after time, and just practicing and reading all sorts of forum posts and Reddit and all sorts of things, I managed to figure it out. What system did you get started on then? So that's that's the really funny part is I actually so I started um, on Dungeon World. So the the art teacher, his name is Sam. Um, Sam got me like he's very much of the belief you know like trying out all sorts of systems and so that's kind of how I got started trying out all sorts of different systems and so I didn't really know how it worked and I was running Dungeon World for like a couple of friends that weren't even in like the board game tabletop club so it sure. was just some random friends that I had and they had no idea how it worked I was like yeah I think I know how it works and I basically tried to run a Powered by the Apocalypse game like it was D&D so I was giving all of I was giving all of the NPCs, like, turns in combat, and I was making them all roll to defy danger every time someone attacked them. It was a disaster. Like, it was just so boring. We just sat around (laughs) rolling dice for, like, three hours. It was terrible. (laughs) Um, I think there's a certain extent to which Dungeon World kind of assumed understanding of Apocalypse World, which, as a stupid teenager, I just, uh, I totally skimmed. Like, I just totally didn't didn't read. Um... (laughs) So yeah, it didn't go great. So I haven't read
0: uh, Apocalypse World. Um, I have run Dungeon World, and I actually, in most cases, I tend to prefer running that over like an actual D and D, just because there's there's less going on. But coming from a D and D style background, like you said, where like monsters have actions, and you know everybody has their own stats and everything it is very different to go from that style of play to the Powered by the Apocalypse where only the players are rolling.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, so there's a... I don't remember exactly what it's called, but there's this PDF somewhere on the internet that's basically... I think it even is on the Dungeon World website, but it's like a fan-made thing where they just spelled out all of the misconceptions that people have about Dungeon World but basically Powered by the Apocalypse as a whole. And... Yeah, it's not official content so I didn't read it. But it it kind of made a good case for it and that was when I kind of got on board even though I started in Dungeon World and I left for a while cuz I was like this made no sense and it kind of sucked. And I tried a bunch of other systems and then it it was going better with those. And then I came back and read that PDF and I was like, "Oh, this makes so much more sense because the game is focused on the players and so it's about, you know, just it's about being cinematic and about like focusing on what's happening to them." Um, it makes a lot more sense once you know you read all the supplementary content, which is not great for a game. It should you know it should like ideally all be in the book, but you know. Yeah, I, I think, think that everyone kind of goes go through that. I think Dungeon World
0: specifically t- kind of does make a lot of assumptions, like you said, because it's a powered by the apocalypse apocalypse game of D anD D, basically as the setting. So you kind of gotta know both. To, yeah, to, to probably have
1: a full understanding of it. Yeah, particularly something that sticks out to me and is that when I first ran it, I didn't know what a cantrip was. Uh, so I was reading the wizard playbook and my friend took the wizard as his playbook and he was like, yeah, so what are cantrips? And I was like, I, I have no idea. And believe it or not, I don't know if I was just doing a terrible job of Googling. I couldn't find online anywhere that explicitly stated what a cantrip was supposed to be. Like, you know, I wanted... Basically, what I needed was someone to tell me it's a 0 with level spell, it costs no slots, like, it's... eat you know, it doesn't need preparation, whatever. Like, but, uh... I couldn't find that anywhere, and it wasn't anywhere in the book. They just assumed you knew what a cantrip was. You know, when I started with 5th edition D&D,
0: that was, that was my first edition of d and I also kind of struggled to figure out what it meant. But yeah, that is the perfect way to explain it. It's just a zero-level spell, uh... Uh, in other otherwise, it's just a regular spell, pretty much.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was. Uh, I think, I, I don't know. I'm to some extent, I was. I'm annoyed, not annoyed, but I also like totally see, you know, what what the journey was, and I know I ha- kind of had to go through some sort of journey where the first time I ran a game, it was going to be terrible, so. I'm just kind of mad because now those friends of mine are probably never going to play tabletop games again (laughs) because (laughs) the one that they played was not fun. Bummer. You'll have to find another
0: setting or something that really piques their interest. True, yeah.
1: And it's, uh, I think for a while, for like a a good while, I had never played D&D. Like, I think uh, I started when I was in 10th grade and I don't think I played D&D until my first year in college, um, it was almost like a, a point of like shame that I was too embarrassed to say that I'd never played D and D, so I just never brought it up. Um, but I was out, ex- you know, exploring all sorts of different systems, and so D and D was very uncommon. Whereas now I have a very stable group that I play with, and so we kind of default to D and D when we have nothing else going on because we all know the system pretty perfectly. Yep. And is that fifth edition? Um, but- yeah, that's 5th edition. Um, I've actually well, I guess I've played Star Wars which I think is like 3.5, right? Um w- uh, which Star Wars one? Uh it's a good question. I just recall one of my friends saying that it was very similar to 3.5. It's it has a big picture of Darth Vader on the front. I'm not really sure. There's Sorry. A, there's a couple um there's a couple Star
0: Wars systems. I know that there's a there's like a 5th edition star wars hack like total conversion taking the 5e rule set and basically turning that all into star wars stuff there's another one it's like star wars d6 or something i no, have... it's a d20 system it's called
1: saga. It's saga edition is what it's called saga um... it's pretty good i mean i i like it it's it's fun we've only ever actually played it as, as sith which is pretty fun but yeah Sith are like bounty hunters.
0: I have not played the Saga edition, but I do have the Fantasy Flight um, Star Wars role-playing games. So the their custom dice pool mechanic, basically, um, which I like, and I'm trying to get a group of friends to play in a consistent campaign with me uh, right now, but that scheduling is hard.
1: <laughs> yeah. So do you like dice pool? I do really like dice pool mechanics. Interesting, okay. So is that probably is that your is that your favorite kind of die type, I guess? Like like resolution system? Yeah, like D20, 2D6. Um I guess there's also like the Blades in the Dark 2D six is a different one. So I I think yes, and I'm maybe a little biased
0: because when I started RPGs, I was also in college and I didn't have anybody to play with. Like there were groups at school, but none of them were really taking on new people at the time. So it was kind of out of luck. And so um, Fantasy Flight had been releasing this Star Wars, uh, their different lines of the of their narrative dice system. And I was like, I mean, that's pretty sweet. So I'll I'll just buy their beginner set and start there. So I started with their narrative dice. RPG as, like, my first ever role-playing game. And then trying to run that for, um, you know, like, my wife and my sister. And and so that obviously went terribly as well. But I, And that maybe has cemented some of the... I really enjoy dice pools and some of the more incremental bonuses that you get from kind of, you know, adding up more and more dice versus right. just a, a roll 20... Or a D twenty where it's you have got a wide spread of what you can get on the dice and then it's just small modifiers that bump it up or down.
1: Yeah, to be honest, I I, I so I, I don't think I've ever played a system with dice pools like successfully. Like I tried um Shadowrun Fifth Edition and I did not really like it. I don't think I've ever talked to someone who enjoyed the rules in Shadowrun five E though. Um but I, I would really like to try a dice pool game because I really, I think it could be really cool. I like the I guess you could also call Blades in the Dark dice pool but I've never managed to get a game of that going either. Um, but yeah, I definitely would prefer it over like D20. I'm not a big fan of, the, of D20 as a task resolution because it's like, I think you need to be playing a game that's like borderline Monty Python for D20 to make sense because then you have an equal chance of do, doing the thing that you as a, as a professional can do doing it uh, comedically well or doing it comedically poorly right those yeah. are all kind of equally likely although after a certain point it becomes impossible for you to comedically mess it up um it's still like just a flat probability you know i just think it's 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 interesting because i you know particularly in in settings where you have Um, you know, hard-boiled criminals are just, like, professionals, just people who do this a lot, they're much less likely to screw things up at all, really. I mean, maybe they will and it'll happen, but it's much less likely than... as It's not, you know, as opposed to in D20 where it's either completely impossible because you have a plus five, or it'll happen just as often as as you'll succeed. You know what I mean? The thing that I really like
0: about um, both Powered by the Apocalypse and somewhat dice pools uh or at least with the narrative dice is the partial success or like the mixed results because Mm -hmm. like you mentioned with d20 it's you either did the thing or you didn't do the thing which is sometimes interesting and sometimes not but a lot of times the more interesting option is i did the thing except there was some penalty or unforeseen circumstance or i Failed to do the thing, but I still got some, you know, like little bonus um, for trying sort of a deal. And I think that to um, so the narrative dice do that really well because they have kind of the four possible results. They've got succeed and fail plus uh, good or bad. And then you're powered by the Apocalypse games just have the three. They have fail, partial success, full success. And actually, I think that's kind of why I really like um, the Blades in the Dark dice mechanic is because it kind of takes what you get from the dice pool of the narrative dice but it also simplifies it down and makes it just a lot faster to read the dice essentially um right because you're only looking for one number on it you're not trying to like cancel results and stuff Uh, so i think that's kind of why my progression of narrative dice to blades in the dark is kind of a preferred uh resolution system
1: that's fair, yeah i I can definitely see the place that uh I, I I really would like to run blades in the dark, particularly because I just finished like two playthroughs of dishonored, so it's just like on my mind that kind of setting um it's well, such a cool like excuse me <clears throat> it's such a cool like setting that i i I'm really hoping that I can kind of sell it to my group maybe like in the next month or so to get me to run a blades in the dark. <laughs> Well, and I know that that setting is largely
0: inspired by the Dishonored um, game.
1: Um,
0: yeah, with with There's other act- influences, obviously. But
1: it's funny how how kind of they, how much they admit to it in the sense that I think that the name of the city or the name of the place in Blades of the Dark is Duskval, as opposed to Dunwall in Dishonored. Right, you're you're walking a pretty close line there <laughs> yeah exactly but actually as you with you mentioned the the mixed success and it's kind of funny because that comes up a lot in discussion that i see around powered by the apocalypse and it's one of those things where when people talk about it in my head i kind of forget that that's not a thing that everyone does because i started on dungeon world so in my head that's built in and i very often am fudging dice rolls pretty constantly if i'm dming like D. um because if, you know, if the if the difficulty was like a 15 and they rolled a 14, then I'll basically treat it as they got a 7 to 9. That's what'll happen. Right. Um, because I want the story to move forward. Like, I want them to see the thing I wanted. I want them to pass the perception check, but I'll give them something bad happening. And, you know, I, I think it's much more interesting to have this complication set up rather than, yeah, you didn't see it. Um, so I don't know if you've heard of uh, Suddenly Ogres. That's another one of those, like kind of fan made explanation like helps you run Apocalypse World, but it's I think this one was specifically for uh, Dungeon World. And they basically talked about, you know, what's supposed to happen if, if players try to either spout lore or um, or read I think it's read a situation. I forget what's what the what the like verbiage is in Dungeon World. But what happens essentially if they fail a perception check? Because obviously if they get a seven to nine like something interesting should happen and so they give a bunch of examples one of which being you know if they try essentially to do a perception check and they get a seven to nine it's like yeah you notice the thing but also suddenly ogres just burst through the door (laughs) and just start attacking you which is you know only works for certain kinds of games but it's still pretty funny i and so this is i think kind of what
0: you said is a good tip for D &D players um because and i think a I think a lot of DMs do this naturally without necessarily thinking about it. But doing those partial successes where they maybe set a target number and then you either don't roll, like you roll exactly that number or you're really close. And they'll do that like, well, you know, and then they'll give you some answer or kind of a a muddied answer or something, depending on what action it is you're attempting, right? Like they'll do partial success like, yeah, you did jump over the cliff, but you didn't roll that high, so you're hanging off on the other end, you know? And I think yeah, I... that I almost feel like having um, just actually writing, like, ranges down for dice results. Like, if you get above a, or below a 15, it's just, like, a complete fail, or it's, you know, whenever those ranges are, just kind of coming up with it to know, like, oh, they're kind of in that, like, sweet spot, like... Maybe this is a mixed result instead of a a full success, even though you're not technically changing. You know, the players don't need to know that you're kind of changing how the target number system works in the background. You're just kind of saying, I'm going to give myself some points of reference for when to say certain things.
1: Yeah, I think that every book has, except for the Powered by the Apocalypse ones, I guess, has that list. That's like, oh, okay, so a 15 is like a kind of difficult action. A 17 is a sort of difficult action. A 19 is a slightly more than kind of slightly difficult action. And I have never used that list in my life um, as far as like setting difficulty values. To be honest with you, most of the time, I mean, you you get a feel for it, so it's not really necessary to use the table, but I always find them rather funny just because... I think the DM most of the time is just going to make happen what they want to make happen, unless they're working off of a specific, you know, pre-written adventure, which to be honest, I, I've been doing recently. Um, it's really nice. So, you know, I, I don't think I, sh- I I'm not judging people who do that at all. Cause I, I really actually enjoyed, you know, running. I ran um, for some, for some like through the, you know, student society at my university I ran, uh, what's it called, Mine, Mines of Fandulver. Yep. Um, and it's really fun, like, to have this pre-laid out dungeon. And, you know, that's kind of where D&D really shines, is that dungeon crawl, like, room to room, looting for treasure. It's really a good time. Um, I think part of the reason that I have, you know, I've, I've played D&D a bit, but, like, I, I think part of the reason that I've never really loved D&D is I don't gravitate to that style of play. But I do enjoy it i do think it's quite fun it's just not my favorite
0: so when you're running DD and you're setting those target numbers and stuff well i guess that is the question are you setting target numbers or are you just kind of have like a list in your head of like this general area is success versus partial
1: uh so i think this is mostly an implicit process you know when i when i'm running things and I'm asking myself i don't ask myself what the numbers are. I more ask myself what do I want to happen, because if there's a perception check, uh, what I find, what I've kind of learned about myself when I first started DMing D D like games, is that you know, let's say there's a perception check for them to notice something interesting. Uh, guess what? I want someone to notice it. So generally, I will find a way for someone to notice it, uh, and you know, having them each roll a perception check and then each one of them roll a different skill and all this stuff, just so that I can tell them the thing that I was going to tell them anyway, it, it takes away from the point. It's, it's you know, and I know that I'm just running it wrong. So generally, I'll just ask myself what I want to happen, and then I'll kind of place, I'll say to myself, you know, if they get like a 25, then I'll tell them a lot. I'm, I'm using perception check just because that's the simplest, I think, kind of ambiguous one. As opposed to say combat, that's very easy. But... Um, I'll say 25, I'll tell them a lot. You know, 15 or below, I'll tell them very, very vague information. But I want them to know something's there, especially with things like traps. You never just want to be like, yep, then you fell in a hole. Like, you need to (laughs) telegraph something. Uh, And I find that to be the case, especially with story, too. Like, you need to telegraph any sorts of twists that are coming. Otherwise, it just feels cheap. Um So movies movies and books foreshadow
0: all the time and you just never connect to the dots usually until you've watched it a second time and you're like, oh, they
1: mentioned this. That totally happens in like ten minutes. Exactly. (laughs) I'm hoping, I'm trying to get to a place, and I'm I'm not there yet personally. Like I uh I'm still in a place where I think when I say something, my players know it's important. And I'm trying and I you know, you I think you've talked about this on the podcast before. Like I'm trying to get to a place that I can just I I think you talked about this with particularly magic items, but I think it's the case for descriptions as well. Um, Because obviously DMs are living and dying by how good their descriptive abilities are. I think you need to be able to describe a situation and give a bunch of useless information. Because it makes the world feel more realized. It makes, you know, if you note that there's just like some plants growing out of the pavement and there's nothing to it. There's just plants growing out of the pavement. I think that that Will first of all give you as a lot more room to foreshadow without making things obvious, and it makes the world feel more realized.
0: Right, because you're, yeah, they're not going to nitpick like, oh, I, I cast detect magic on the plants. Um... Yeah, well, if they do,
1: <laughs> you sit them down and be like, guys, please. <laughs> <laughs> um... I've actually I've had to have one of those conversations before, and you know my players are always really good sports about it. Um, because they're also all DMs. Like, we all DM in very different styles, but we are all DMs. So, if something is happening that I'm like, please stop it, then usually it'll be fine.
0: I really like your approach to the perception check, because a lot of times I see it as, like, oh, you don't notice anything, which isn't interesting and halts the story. Um, but just to say, like, if you roll really high, you get a ton of information, and if you roll low, you still find out about it you just it might be kind of muddied information or it might not be all you might need to do more digging to to flesh out the information um, exactly i know i saw a tip on reddit like yesterday i think and they just said if there's something like a perception check or whatever if there's some piece of information that your players need to know in order for the story to continue on don't hide it behind a check that they can fail, because it doesn't actually help anything.
1: Yeah, Which exactly. Is exactly
0: what you're saying now, so
1: I also think, you know, it's something that I don't I don't have the answer for this one. I would and I would actually love to see if you have some thoughts, because something that I've always wanted to do, and something that is brought and actually is brought up in that suddenly ogres PDF that I mentioned, is if they fail a perception check, give them incorrect information. And when I, and one of my favorite things to do when you're dealing with a perception check in, you know, in any system, basically, if they get that mixed success, usually what I'll do, or I'll try to do, is I'll give them fundamentally the correct information, but I'll give them incorrect details. But if they fully fail, and so like, in in the mixed success, they don't know what's true and what's not. They just know that's what they have, and they should have something in there is true. But if they get a two, and I tell them something, they know it's wrong. And in a sense, I'm actually giving them information because I'm telling them what it, it's not. And so I would love to figure out some way that I... And, you know, part of that is just having an agreement with your players that they'll roleplay as if that's actually what they thought. But to me, the only way that that can be fixed is if you're rolling for your players, and obviously that's no fun.
0: Right, so you're, your players are aware that you will give them um, potentially incorrect information.
1: Yeah, I try to make that telegraphed, especially because, and what my current solution is, is to kind of just trust them, is to just say, like, here's what you think you know, because we both know you failed. We both saw the dice. Your character doesn't know that they failed. They think they saw this, and it's the wrong thing. Um, And so I'll also, like I said, mix in incorrect details when it comes to a seven to nine kind of situation in Dungeon World, but, you know in any system if they if they rolled like right below the um what the difficulty was if there's a specific one that was planned because that's what i've been doing with say like Fandel uh Fandelver, is if there's a perception check and i want them to notice it because i want them to engage with all the content uh because it's all really cool i think the writing in that in that story is pretty solid and all the stuff to engage with is really interesting so i'll often just tell them things and switch up the details depending on how well they roll yeah, I don't think I've heard other people doing that, or at
0: least not that I've read. So I think that's a pretty cool um, way to approach perception checks in a way that they still get to roll, they still get the information, but it also gives them a little bit of mystery. Even if they know that it might not be 100%, I mean, they may not know what pieces are wrong about it still. So the players themselves know that something's not all there, but they don't know what exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. There's also a piece of this with um, I don't know if you're familiar with Torg Eternity. Um, it's I, a no, I'm it's not. A, it's it's a system that's like from the 90s, but it actually just got like a re-release uh, by Ulysses Spiel, like uh, I would say a year ago. I, it's really fun. I, I recommend it. It's very uh, it's a good time. It's one of those games that I love because it really presents an interesting challenge to the DM. Which is, so basically Torg, I think that Torg stands for, like, the other role-playing game. Like, it was a placeholder name, and then they just kept it. <laughs> um, but basically the situation is that you're, you have Earth, um, and it's kind of basically our normal Earth. Maybe a little bit more like Indiana Jones Earth, where there's, like, cultists, and Bigfoot definitely exists, and things like that. But it's it's basically Earth. And then Earth gets invaded by other realities. And the other realities kind of take over parts of the world. So, for example... There's, like, the living land, which is there's dinosaur people and, and and really big, scary dinosaurs running around, and it's just complete forest and, like, lizard men running around in North America. And then there's Isle, which is, like, classic fantasy. There's dwarves and elves and dragons and stuff, and that's all in England. And there's um, Urorsh, which is, like kind of like Lovecraftian horror almost, which is in India. Like, and so that's just, there's, I think, six Cosms just all over the world, and they have all completely different um, enemies and all sorts of different stories to be told. But the interesting challenge it presents to the DM especially is all of them have different flavors. I mean, two so two particular ones as well are Pan Pacifica, which is in East... Asia, and it's like a mix between like Resident Evil and Blade Runner, where there's zombies running around, but it's also like there's like big corp big scary corporations <laughs> like controlling everything, and the tone that you will take as a DM describing scenarios there is completely different to one that you'd take in say the Nile Empire, which is right around Egypt, uh, which is like super high pulpy, like you know there's ray guns and all sorts of superheroes running around. And so the two tones are completely different because in, in the one you have like, you know, you're like having fist fights on top of trains while like the villain maniacally laughs at you from the end of the train in the Nile Empire. And then like in the living land, it's like a furious scrape for survival. And then in Isle, it's just classic fantasy. And then you have like in Pan Pacifica, it's basically cyberpunk. Like there's all sorts of different and you have to just swap on a dime because they can move around in one session from one cosm to another which gives you a lot of room, but it's also, it's tough. Sorry, (laughs) I just got really excited about that. But the reason I brought that up is Torg also presents a lot of tools for making that sort of stuff happen, making those sort of turns happen. Like they have uh, cards that you hand out to your players that they can use, you know, to alter their roles and things like that. And what the cards do are different depending on, the cosm that you're in. So, um, to reinforce, like in the Nile Empire, you can have like the villain, you can, the, the players can get a card, which if they're presented with, with like a big bad with a villain, they can play a card that will cause the villain to stop whatever they're doing and start monologuing, no matter what, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. And if you're in Pan Pacifica, you can like get some, some, some other, get more cards, get, you know, draw three cards play this card and someone will betray you because Pan Pacifica is supposed to be all about like people just stabbing each other in the back. And so it reinforces each of the settings individually, which is cool. And it also gives the players a narrative driven resource that they can, you know, they can control the narrative a bit because it's like, okay, this is, you know, what's going on here is fun, but I have this card that can make it so that someone who we're working with will just betray us right now. And it can completely change the uh like what's going on in the session but they feel like they have agency which is really cool and you as the dm can hand out these things as rewards and that was sorry the reason that i brought this up was i like when games have you know give the dm a resource that they can hand out to players as rewards for you know good role playing so when i was running torg with my group the, one of the other resources that you get are called possibilities, which are tokens that are kind of like inspiration in d and d, but they have an, there's more going on. They have an expanded role to play. but you you're you're encouraged to actively hand them out for like good roleplay and things like that. And I love it when systems give you that sort of currency that you can encourage good role playing from your players. I really like that
0: that. The book sounds like a lot, um, but it also sounds really cool in the way that you described it. Um, and those, so those cards that you mentioned, like the mm-hmm. to uh, be betrayed or whatever, does the DM, like when they're handing them out, do they know like I'm handing you a card that says somebody will be, betray you on it? Or is it just kind of a, a generic and
1: then it just depends on what setting they're in? So I don't know if they recommend what they recommend as far as, like, if the DM should know, but we agreed that for my sanity, I should know what kinds of things were on the table to just occur. Um, and it, so it depends on the on the setting which of the cards you're going to get. I think that was... Sorry, I think I might have misunderstood your question. Were you asking, like, which... Um, does it depend what cards they're going to get on which setting they're in?
0: Right, well, so do they... So, like, does the card say specifically on it, like, Betrayal or something like
1: that? And then, like, there are different variations depending on where you're at? Oh, I see what you mean. So, no. kind Well, kind of. So there's generic cards, which are just, you know, kind of more or less filler cards, but they'll do things like add three to a roll and things like that. And then there's very specific ro- uh, cards that are for, you know, if you enter, excuse me, if you enter this realm, if you enter the Nile Empire, then each of you draws one Nile Empire card, and all of the Nile Empire cards have on them one thing that'll happen often in the Nile Empire that the players can then play to be like, this happens now. L- which, like I mentioned, was things like, the the villain will stop whatever they're doing and start monologuing. So
0: in does the player get to decide, like if it's uh, ambiguous as to which npc it would be right like if it's this uh, one npc betrays us right now do they get to pick who it is or do they just throw the card down and then you as the dm say okay it would make the most sense if this person is is behind it
1: uh generally they leave them open-ended enough so that the gm can keep their sanity <laughs> um so it's just some they. it's like someone betrays you you know take three possibilities or someone betray and they'll even give the dm a bit of room where it's like You know, someone betrays you. Take one to three possibilities, depending on how severe. So, if it's like their best friend who's been working with them for like ages and ages, and then they suddenly betray them, then they're gonna get a lot of like currency for that betrayal. Where if it's just some random soldier that they're working with turns out turns on them, you know, it's whatever. It's not as much of a big deal. And so the GM gets the control to say, "Here's what's gonna happen." Another, another good example would be, like, when they go to Pan Pacifica, which, like I mentioned, is kind of like Resident Evil is in there, but it's also, like, Blade Runner. Um, you, they'll get a card that's, like, um, a bunch of zombies will show up right now, you know, depending on how many possibilities that... Uh, take however many possibilities for how severe the outbreak is. Or someone that you're working with, someone in your party, is infected and starts to turn right now. Things like that.
0: Those are really cool little interrupts that the players can have. Um, I'm almost surprised that I haven't seen more of that in other other games, or as like a. You could even have that as like a supplement deck that you could play with within like
1: any system. That's true. Yeah, it it would be very cool. I like the. I really like it a lot because I you know tend to, I tend to not like the more crunchy games, but. I don't like the more crunchy games when they focus on combat. The thing I really like about Torg is everything about it that's crunchy, or most like a board game, which is, you know, the cards, and they're, you're passing around, like, these poker chips that are the currency. All of it's narrative-driven. Like, it's all about, you know, play this card, and something like this will happen in the narrative. And I actually really like that, because it makes things a lot more clear to the players about what's going to happen and what control they have over the narrative.
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, it. The players may have an input, like you know, you you maybe play in a game of D&D and players might say, hey, it would be kind of cool if this thing happened, right? And then the DM can take that up for interpretation and maybe have it happen, maybe not. But with this system, you're explicitly saying, yes, you have this control. You can make this decision when you want to and you can have that input on the story, Um, which kind of reminds me of the, at least with Dungeon World, there are a lot of moves, like um, um, like spout lore. I think is one of them where, like, the player gets to make a decision about something in the game world or in the lore, and then that's just like a true statement, right? Like, it kind of gives some narrative control back to the players to kind of come up with the world.
1: Oh, so that's a lot like a fellowship, actually.
0: Have you have you heard of fellowship? I have heard of fellowship, and I definitely need to read it, but I
1: have not got a chance Fair. to. Fair. That fellowship takes that idea to its kind of logical conclusion, where everyone, every player, has is representative of one of the cultures. You know, like dwarves, elves, giants, uh, orcs, whatever, and then they have a move where they decide on something that's true about the about the world, particularly relevant to their people. And so they, it, like, takes the, like, we are creating this world together, and it completely mechanizes it. Basically. Well, it mechanizes it, maybe the wrong verb, but it just completely says, like, no, yeah, players, you are in control. You need to take responsibility for this, because that's also an issue that I think happens in Dungeon World, is you don't, like, a lot, and a lot of DMs, this is fine if they like that, but... I have a hard time getting my players sometimes to take responsibility for helping me create the world because it's not explicitly stated how much they should be helping me. And that's not generally the case in other RPGs. Whereas in Fellowship, it's very explicit. You as players need to make this decision about your people or whatever.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. I I feel like when I've played in D&D games um, or or heard people talking about their D&D games, The DM is generally like, this is their world that they are either, it's either a module or that they have very specific control over kind of the lore and how things are set up and function. And there's very little input from the players. And then kind of as you move down the spectrum, Dungeon World is kind of in the middle, um, where there's, it's supposed to be a little bit more narratively free for the players to participate. one th- one issue that i've run into there is it really depends on your group because the group that i have that plays um dungeon world that i run dungeon world for i think they're more on the lines of they would rather experience kind of the story or experience the setting and not necessarily have as much responsibility or they f- or they maybe feel like if they're coming up with stuff, they feel like they're kind of cheating in a way because they get to decide things and they feel like they shouldn't have that kind of control? Yes, I've seen that. I don't know exactly how you, how you fix that, or if it, it may just be... Um, it may not be something to be fixed, it may just be player preference, right?
1: Yeah, I think... Something that I, actually, this is, I think, good advice for general, like PVTA, but also Dungeon World, that I kind of came across is you know, in our in the rest of our lives, in everywhere else in our lives, we're kind of told to not ask loaded questions, which is good. You know, you shouldn't be asking people loaded questions. But in Dungeon World, I think that's kind of the DM's best friend. And I, that's how I have best managed to convince my players to take that responsibility. The examples, like, there is, in my opinion, you know, taking it a bit too far. I don't like things like, you know, you're in a dungeon, and, like, your players are, like, opening a chest, and it's like, you open the chest. You see something inside that you don't like. What is it? That's a little too far for me, although I can totally see how people would enjoy that. Um, But I go for things in a broader spectrum to kind of set the narrative, like, asking super loaded questions like, you know, X player. Last time you were in this town, you you know, you got in a really bad fight, what was it over? Who was it with? And kind of prodding them and encouraging them, and like I said, asking super loaded questions. Not just saying, hey, X player, what happened last time you were here? That's way too open-ended. But going in super specifically and asking myself again, what do DM want to happen? And I go in with saying to myself, I want there to be some conflict off the bat when they enter this town. So I'm going to pick the player that I think is the most combative or the most likely to give me an interesting answer. And then when they answer the town, ask them this super loaded question that even maybe goes as far as to say, like, it was with a scorned lover. Like, are they still in town? Or not, actually, that's a bad one, because then they can just say no. But, you know, asking them the question that where their answer will be interesting, but still abide by all of the specifics of what I want to happen. Right, and
0: I think that's another tip that can be used outside of uh, PBTA games, you know, you could do that in D&D as well to somewhat generate um, generate the world and, like you said, kind of push them in a certain direction. Like you said, if you want to have consequences or conflict, then you kind of can build this thing quickly based on what they said.
1: Yeah. There's a style of play that I have never gotten to. And I, it's kind of along the lines of what you mentioned of experiencing a story or a world rather than, you know, being responsible for co-creating it, which I don't know if you have ever heard of Z-Bashu. Uh, I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name, to be honest, but is it a, YouTube channel? a YouTuber. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I love that guy. He, so have you seen like his video about, I forget, actually, I forget what that video is called, but it's kind of just generic advice for DMing, and he basically says, you know, a particular style of play I've been using a lot recently is, and it's, I think that this particular style of play is really good for introducing new people to to the hobby, which is picking an established setting, something like Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings, and then playing a really simple system in that setting, something, you know, maybe D&D, if that's if that's what everyone's down for, pick something else if, you know, if that's viable and you want to do it, whatever. But picking that established setting and then there's you can wiki things and they can decide what they want to happen and it's not too open-ended. Because I have some really brilliant players I play with that I can say, what do you want to happen? And they'll tell me and they'll come up with a, almost a fully fleshed out story because, like I said, we're all GMs. So they can give me that ammunition. They know that that's helpful, and they'll help me out with it. But newer players, that's too much. It's too open-ended. If I ask them, even if they have an established character and we're in this city, it's still mostly poorly defined because it's kind of homebrew, and I say to them, what do you want to happen? They're going to say, I don't know. So if we're in an established setting like Lord of the Rings, they can say, like, I want to meet Bjorn. And then I can make that happen because they can Google it, they can wiki it, and they can decide based on their knowledge of the setting, these are the things that I want to happen.
0: Yeah, and that's actually kind of where I've come from. Uh, Not quite that exact style of play, but definitely using established settings. Like I mentioned, the Star Wars systems. Um, I actually, the last session I ran, um, I basically ran a one-shot to get my players interested uh, and to kind of teach them the system. Um, And I just, I basically made the characters from Rebels. From the TV, or from the cartoon show, oh, um, so nice. they were they were mostly familiar with the characters. They got to play as those characters, so they're already overpowered. Um, and one of the uh, we had a new player come in in a second session who wasn't as familiar, and he was just going through the wiki. We were mentioning names, and he's like, "Oh yeah, I just pulled him up on the weekend, got a picture and everything." So it was that was actually helpful to be for him to just kind of know exactly
1: what we were talking about right away you know, and having that extra resource there. Exactly. It generates a lot more player buy-in if you have, if you're doing that in a, in a setting where your players might not be as familiar with the hobby to begin with, which, like, I'm, I'm trying to run an RPG with some people up at, my, at my new workplace. And, um, yeah, I think I'm going to have to use an established setting to get that buy-in from them, because none of them, I think to them, tabletop RPG is, like, people LARPing in a park, um, which is fine. <laughs> I'm going to hope that I can kind of bring them in and, and I can you know introduce them to something they'll enjoy, but it's definitely going to be a bit of an uphill battle.
0: So when you are going to introduce them, will you do a one shot to kind of get them started or will you try to pull them in with a like a full campaign or
1: I think I will stick to one shots to begin with. Um for a couple reasons, mostly because I well, one part because I try my hardest to read my players and read what they like and what they want. And so, you know, I don't know if they are, you know, power gamers, going to min-max their characters, whatever, and if, you, if you're if you playing Dungeon World with, with a min-maxer, it's just not going to go well. I tried playing Apocalypse World with someone who is, like, a very much a min-maxer, and that's a, totally a valid style of play. Just not, maybe, for Apocalypse World, because then it's just, you're not gelling with what the system wants you to do. But, um... Yeah, I mean he he basically got a silenced sniper rifle and s- sat outside of my big bad's lair and just waited until some point he walked out and then killed him and I was like, "Okay." Um <laughs> so yeah, I like to read my players and and create the story that they want to happen. And I, you know, what I realized with that Apocalypse World one is they didn't want to have this big campaign. They just wanted to just kind of screw around in this interesting setting with like I don't know if you know the Apocalypse World setting, but it's pretty interesting, and if I gave them more of the opportunity to just kind of be bounty hunters, essentially, and just, you know, run around doing contracts, getting giving them very small um, pieces of... giving them very, like, small contracts that they can execute in one session and feel cool, because that's what they wanted from the setting, as opposed to, I want this really long, character-driven drama, you know? It's hard to read that. And change pivot based on your prep in session one so I think one shots make a good setting for you to read that out of your players
0: yeah and that's actually almost what I'm doing with the Star Wars game is it's it's the edge of the empire so they're like bounty hunters mercenaries scum and like you said just kind of missions like here's your mission and it might take us you know two or three sessions to get through a mission and then we give them another mission and let them get paid and, and buy new gear and stuff and and just keep going it also makes it a little easier because it's not like okay where do you want to go now it's it's like we kind of kind of set a scope on like here's where the mission needs to take place here's kind of your parameters and then go nuts figure out how to complete the mission
1: yeah it's like asking you know which would you prefer the clone wars of the mandalorian both? I don't know if you've if... said... <laughs> yeah, I mean, fair enough. Um, but, yeah, I, I think, like, one thing that I had a lot of struggle with as well, that is, you know, kind of the core, I guess, the core issue of the whole hobby is, how do I get my players to feel that, like, you know, how, how do I get my players to, like, feel that buy-in for the characters that they made themselves, and to understand their own characters, you know, ambitions, and wants, and needs, and so that when I say, where do you go next, what do you do next, they have an answer. Because, in practice, I try to never ask that question. But I want, ideally, I want my players to have an answer, regardless if I ask or not.
0: Uh, Because then they
1: can try and push.
0: Ideally, they're, like, itching to get to the next place, or or whatever it is. You know, because they have some attachment or goal that revolves around, you know, X... YZ and they're going to try and figure out how to get to it. I mean, that's ideal.
1: I mean, I had a <laughs> I had a player, this was actually in my first Dungeon World game, who's like one of my, you know, he's one of my closest friends, but he's not a tabletop RPG player and I definitely wasn't a DM at the time. He uh he played the game like it was Skyrim. You know, we had an encounter with some bandits on the road and he He was like, I'm going to loot them. And I was like, they don't really have that much money. And he was like, all right, well, they had weapons, right? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, I take all of their iron daggers. And I was like, okay. (laughs) And then we get to the town, and he's like, I sell the iron daggers. And then, you know, I'm trying to make that interesting somehow, and we're held up. The rest of the players are, like, bored. We're held up trying to sell his iron daggers. Like, you know, in hindsight, there's a lot of things I could have done differently, but that's just someone trying to play a tabletop RPG like a video game. And, uh, well, it's just not meant for that, really. <laughs> right, that's, that's maybe a
0: little bit... Uh, that situation maybe would need a little just more hand-waving to say,
1: yeah, you sold them. Here's how so much money you made. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Move on. <laughs> I was just really hoping to... I Like, you know, I'm struggling in my head to think, like, is he going to do this with every encounter? Like, can I discourage this somehow? Do I have to make the market crash on Iron Daggers? Like, what's going to happen? So... You know, in hindsight, I think that there's a lot of ways to handle that. And one of them, honestly, that I think gets underappreciated in general, and I definitely took me a while to learn this, is the whole game is just an agreement between the DM and the players. And you need to lay out the terms of that agreement really clearly so that everyone knows what they're getting into, for a lot of reasons, not the least of which being, you know, you're not going to introduce any topics that people are uncomfortable with. But also, the DM, I mean they're doing something for the players. They should have the right to say to the players, this is the kind of game I'm trying to run. Can you help me run that game and we'll all have fun if we are all trying to play the same game? Because if we're trying to play different games, it's not going to be fun. Is that something that you talk
0: about in like a session zero? Or just ahead of time?
1: Yeah, I always... Um, I always try to have um, one-on-one time with players at this point in my life. Like, so I mentioned that I was running a D, de- uh, I was running uh, with some people at my school. Um, new people were coming into the group, and every time I sat down with them for like an hour, just to sit, you know, say like, okay. Th- actually, a player, one of my players that in, in my more regular group, that he has, I love the way he asks this question. Um, when I sit down, and I use it now every time I sit down with a new player, I ask them you know, what kind of game do you want to run? Do you want it to be more like Game of Thrones or more like Monty Python? Put it on the scale between those two. And that gets a lot of what I want out of them most of the time. Because either it'll put in their heads like, oh, okay, I can answer in, in terms of a kind of media. For some reason, a lot of new role-playing people that I've met seem to think that referring to existing uh like you know tv shows movies whatever books is taboo like they shouldn't do it and i'm like no that's why we're here so tell me what tv show you're trying to play and that will make my life a lot easier to give you that experience you know i think i have always
0: struggled uh whenever i build a character i always base it off of some other character um whether it's from a tv series or a book or something (laughs) kind of it's kind of a hard habit to break honestly
1: (laughs) Oh, absolutely. I mean it feels it, it feels almost like I think people kind of get and I, I, I shouldn't say people I, I should include myself in that. Um, I get this idea in my head that what we're doing is is basically like we're writing a book together, and so every all the ideas need to be cool and original, and that's just not true. I think in my time, in my time as a player and as a DM, the more that you know, everyone admits to what we are trying to replicate, what kind like what media we're trying to replicate, the more fun we have. Well, and I think that kind of goes
0: to the uh, Powered by the Apocalypse too. Most of them have very specific settings, like even Blades in the Dark, like we mentioned, really kind of emulates that kind of dishonored. Uh, the world and kind of the the mission structure, um, and like Monster of the Week is more Buffy the Vampire Hunter. Um,
1: yeah, I actually ran a, a game of uh, Monster of the Week for a while, and I honestly I had my issues with it because I think it didn't gel with my style of play. That my player, and this is the same thing I mentioned, where my players were expecting this this kind of longer narrative, and I was trying to run like individual. Thing individual little adventures and it was it just didn't gel very well. Um, I, I I never really managed to get it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I just my players. I <laughs> this is like my one of my main like or my main group pretty much. And that was the last time that we played Powered by the Apocalypse. And so now it, I <laughs> it's going to be hard to convince them to play again. <laughs> um, because I didn't. I don't think I did a very good job with Monster of the Week, and I it's definitely not my favorite um of the of the powered by the apocalypse games that I have at least like read. I'm really I really am tr- I have like such a ridiculous collection of PDFs on my laptop of all these different RPGs that I want to try so badly, especially ones that I got from like basically the Humble Bundle of RPGs. I don't know if you've heard of Bundle of Holding. Uh you know, I think I've heard of it briefly, but I've never looked
0: into it, so I I maybe should or shouldn't.
1: <laughs> well yeah, exactly. It's a it's really cool. I like it. They do it's very similar to Humble Bundle where it's like they'll, you know, every month or two they'll pick an RPG and do a package deal where it's like donate you know 10 bucks and you'll get the base game and one extra PDF one extra expansion if it's 25 bucks or more you'll get I'm making up numbers but like you know donate 25 bucks or more and you'll get the base game and all of the expansions which is like 15 PDFs like it's great but then I collect all these systems that I never play
0: (laughs) yeah I've definitely already have a massive list of PDFs that I I've probably skimmed and then never fully read them either uh, let alone play um, are there specific uh, games or RPGs that you
1: like really
0: want to run and haven't yet
1: yeah I mean so there's two that come to mind eh, three three that come to mind one is uh, Blades in the Dark uh, I've just heard such good things about it and I love Powered by the Apocalypse so it really just seems up. and I'm also you know just finished Dishonored like it's just it's right up my alley you know what I mean uh, so I would love to run it. Um, the other two, slightly more interesting. One is Troika. Have you heard of Troika? Yes, it was
0: mentioned on one of the other um, podcasts. Oh, okay, I'm not
1: caught up. Um, it was, uh, It's. I have like, if they got through Bundle of Holding, I got all the PDFs. But the thing about Troika that's crazy, I don't know how much it was talked about, is just there's like almost no setting laid out but there's also so much laid out in like character descriptions and whatnot. It's just so it's so abstract and so hard to get a grip on. And I ran it for like my friends because uh being great friends, it was my birthday and they were like, We'll let you run an RPG session with us. <laughs> so I ran a game of Troika and it went fine, but I don't think I I managed to really like understand how I should have been running it. Um, because they don't really hold your hand at all. They just present you with all this absurdly beautiful art and cool content, and then just don't really give you much advice on how to run it. Um, But, yeah. And then the last one is probably um, Fading Suns, which is my all-time favorite uh, RPG setting. I don't know if you've heard of that one or not. I have not heard of that one. So it's basically Dune with the serial numbers filed off. Um, And it's a very old game. Uh, I would say it goes back to the 90s, and they just released a new edition, and it's just such a cool setting. I mean, you know, it's uh, similar to Blades in the Dark, where it's like, you know, with Dune, you have House... uh, What is it? You have the Hawkwood, uh, sorry, the Atreides, which is like the Hawkwoods. You have like the Harcon, no, yeah, 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 You have the Harconens, which is like the Decados. Like they, they just perfectly line up all of the noble houses to the ones in Dune. But then it expands outwards, talk, you know, dealing with the church, and there's also like the merchant skills and all these things. And I just love the setting. It's like probably my favorite, but I've never gotten a group. To care about the setting, because every time that I suggest it to my main group, they're like, "That's just that sounds like bad Warhammer 40k. Let's just play that instead." <laughs> and um, I mean, I like Warhammer 40k, but uh, it's it's not the same at all. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I'm hoping one day I can get a group to care about that setting and I can run it, but I, not yet. Yeah, it's tough if they don't if you don't
0: have the buy in on the setting for sure. Cause that's yeah, a, I mean, exactly. that's a massive part of the enjoyment is that everybody is likes
1: what you're, what you're playing in. Yeah, exactly. And I'm hoping, and I, I want that, you know, pre-established cause it is a pre-established setting and I want that pre-established setting, those benefits of like, I want someone to say to me, like, oh, I really want to get in a duel with, like, a Decados Noble, you know, like, those sorts of things, like, present those to me, because even if I run it, if I even, if I force it on my group now, they're not going to know what's going on, which is fine, but I, you know, it's, it's sad. Um, My dream, actually, my, my dream project, when I have the time to work on it, is making a Powered by the Apocalypse hack for that setting. Sure, for kind of the Dune setting? Pretty much, yeah. Um, I'm hoping that it's, you know, it's. It, I don't think it's going to be easy by any means, but I'm hoping that I don't just get burned out and put in a bunch of work and then just never finish it. So there, there was one
0: question I was going to ask, which was if you could make any RPG book, what would it be? And I, I'm assuming that that is the book then
1: do is it like what for me to write or someone else write and i get to play those are different e-
0: e- like. either um if if you wanted to write it sure but if you could just have a book where you're like oh yeah somebody wrote this and it's like the perfect book that i need for running games like
1: what would that book be so i mean yeah the answer of what i would write is probably this fading suns um Powered by the Apocalypse hack, just because that feels within my means, I think I understand pretty well how Powered by the Apocalypse writing works. Another is for Avatar The Last Airbender. I mean, we had this discussion in the Discord, but I have so many thoughts about how I would want to run a Powered by the Apocalypse, Avatar The Last Airbender um, kind of game. And, you know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of stuff about, like, around like Wuxia and Xiaxia, like fiction that I would want to incorporate in that because you know Avatar is obviously just inspired by those um those stories and so like if I could have a an RPG book that covers basically like Wuxia and Xiansia like just Chinese fantasy basically um I would love that because I love Chinese fantasy. Um but I, to my knowledge that doesn't exist really there is a
0: book um that, I'm just going to take a second to look it up, because I know I can find it. They talked about it on the um, Discern Realities podcast. It was a Dungeon World podcast. Um, I've heard of that one. It was like the last one that they did. They talked about basically that kind of a book. Um, oh, really? So, you know, <laughs> I get
1: to make my dreams come true. Here. They
0: did. Um, it was like a kind of like a promotional episode, uh, mm-hmm. Okay, so Hearts of Wu Lin is the name of it, um, oh, nice. and I can send you a link to the their actual podcast episode. Um, That'd be great. I'm just gonna try to look up the book quick. I, I assume it's on Drive RPG probably.
1: Oh, it's powered by the apocalypse.
0: Um, looks like it was on Kickstarter. I mean, this was a while back because they're they they have not done their podcast for a while. Uh, this was. Oh, hold on a second. So, Hearts of Wu There is a last updated in May of this year. Oh wow! Uh, is this still going? Pre-order. So there is a Hearts of Wu Lin pre-order on Kickstarter right now. So that might be something to look into for you. I just remember them talking about that style of storytelling. Okay. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it mixes in the Avatar like the the bending and stuff. I don't remember if that's in it or not.
1: Um, but... I mean, I'm I'm not particularly picky. It's I, I it's just that like so I grew up on this kind of like uh, TV show because it's stuff that my dad really likes, um, and so I would love you know, and I would need players that are also interested in that because I don't think that my normal group um, would be interested because I I live in Montreal and so my group is like all oh, Quebecois people that I don't think would have as much buy-in on like a wusha shanshah like melodrama <laughs> RPG as I yeah. would. <laughs> yeah, I love. I love the Avatar, um,
0: especially the, like, original series. Um, Mm -hmm. Very good storytelling. Um, And I I think if I, when I, I pull from that a lot in my D&D stuff, or my Dungeon World stuff, um, but it's, it's less of maybe the actual storytelling aspects of it, and more of the, like, here are some places and some people with really weird abilities about bending elements, you know, that they may be used in a way that you weren't expecting, you know, to throw the players off a little bit. But um, like one of the, one of the last ones I ran, we were basically in uh, bossing say, and I had the like secret police and stuff after them because those are such cool enemies with their like stone gauntlets and stuff.
1: Yeah. They're really cool. Um, Something that I always looked, I always wanted out of, um, out of like the avatar setting that was never quite there for me, which I, and to be clear, Avatar The Last Airbender is like probably at least top three favorite TV shows. I love it so much. Um, but something that, you know, and it's, it's, it's a kid's show still and I grew up on it. So it's, you know, but there's pieces of it that are a bit, I guess, I don't know what the, like maybe just simple, like the fact that, you know, you're either born being a bender or you're, you're not a bender. And if you are born a bender, bending is not so, like, there's not a lot of, we don't witness a lot of people struggling to learn how to bend. Um, And I always, and that's fair enough, and they also, I know they expanded on that in Korra, but I always wanted them to, like, have this whole idea of, like, you need to, like, connect to to the center, like, you need to connect to the culture that's based around the bending, such as, like, you know, when Aang has to behave more like an earthbender when he needs to learn earthbending, I always wanted that to be, like, the way that people learn bending because it would have been a really interesting thing for Aang, and it would have made it more interesting as a setting, I think, but also, obviously, a lot more complicated. So, you know.
0: Yeah, yeah, Well, and, and it kind of makes sense for him, since he's nobody else has multiple elements, so maybe more of a challenge for him. But yeah, that I do agree with that idea. I think the thing that I really liked about, well, one, the characters were really fleshed out, but just the amount of thought they put into, like, if, a, if there was a city of earthbenders, like, their whole infrastructure would be different than waterbenders or firebenders, right? Like, all of their technology is very different, but in a way that makes sense to the setting. It's, yeah. It's not like they absolutely. just dropped in, like, regular villages and just didn't, like, didn't even think about it, right? It's just regular kind of medieval towns except some people can control the elements like they really thought about the consequences of what having a a large portion of the population being able to do that would
1: do to like their economy and their uh their cities and everything i always aspire to have that level of you know thinking off screen i guess is the way to put it in, in dungeon world terms um when i'm you know dealing with a setting that's mainly homebrew because that's so hard to deal with, you know. I think one of my favorite... I don't know if you've, if you've ever watched Nerdwriter on YouTube, but I always think about this example he gave in Skyrim. You know, there's just not much thought given to the spells in the sense that if we just took one, not even a very cool or exciting Skyrim spell, like the one where you can just create a sword. I like forget what it's called, but like you can just summon a sword for a little bit of magicka. Like, if you really consider what that spell would do in a world it changes everything cuz blacksmiths pretty much go out of business like every it's like a first level spell so like pretty much every single person will be taught how to use it and everyone's going to be using those magical swords like it's it changes the entire layout of the entire world but they just leave it as a generic fantasy and then toss all these spells on top whereas on the other hand you have like you know death stranding which i haven't played death stranding but he talks about in in his video how they have the timefall which is the the rain that ages things and that like you know, it's really well thought out in the sense that, first of all, you have, of course, it's a threat, but it's not just a threat. You also have people out there, like, you come across this brewery where they just leave their, like, beer or wine or whatever in vats out overnight. And if it rains on it, you have 500-year-old whiskey overnight. You know what I mean? It's it's <laughs> incredible. Right. They're using the mechanics of the world. And really asking, like, okay, what happens now? Like, what are the consequences? Right.
0: Yeah, I, that is definitely one of the big things I ap- appreciated from um, from Avatar. Yeah, that's tough as a as a DM to think about all of the consequences of your world and and things inside of it.
1: Yeah, I think that there's a you know there's one one way in which it's very different, like art tabletop from TV shows or movies that I've also come to grips with recently. Is you know in movies and TV shows, like we were saying, they'll often foreshadow things in such a way that you'll only notice it on the repeat, right? And it's hard to make your players remember things because they're only gonna see it once. And so one way, and one way in which I've kind of come to accept that it's just different is that if you're gonna show a consequence, you need to make it clear that it would have been different if they'd done something else and i think that blades in the dark like from what i've read has a good system for that of like the reaction phase where you can actually there's a there's literally mechanically a way for the players to watch their effects of their actions on the world whereas in something like dungeon world it's more free form you just need to show it as they go but what i've come to pre, what i've come to do more is really clearly lay out how things would be different if they hadn't done exactly what they'd done. Because then it makes them appreciate that I am actually doing something. If I didn't tell them that, they might not know that it wouldn't be exactly like that if they hadn't done what they'd done. You know what I mean? Sure. Do you have an example that you could give of that? Sure. So, I mean... uh, Let me think. There was... I mean, so, I think... Fandolver is a good example. Um, I recently did this with... So, uh, for people who aren't familiar with the story, there's a part where, you know, you come to the town of Fandolin and there's these bandits harassing the town. And basically, the players ended up going to the hideout and, you know, trying to, like, take them down or whatever. And in the hideout, they find this woman and her daughter and son who are captured and were going to be sold into slavery. They decide to free them. And... After they, and there is, like, in, in the book, it is written that she can tell you guys, like, here's, you know, I can't pay you, but here's where you can find, like, a family heirloom of mine that's very valuable. And, you know, I wanted to show to them, you know, they go on and they go and finish the rest of the dungeon. I wanted to show to them that that decision had an impact on the world. And so, you know, when they return to the town, I... Like, you know, I have her being friends with all of the NPCs that they've already become familiar with. And all of the NPCs are like specifically thanking them for saving their friend and saying, like, I never thought I would see her again. I was so worried about her and really telling them, like, you have made a difference by doing this. And all of the people clearly like you more now that you've done this thing. I wanted them to feel like their actions had consequences. So that was, I guess, a small way in which I tried to make that happen. Yeah, and it's kind of it's kind of inspired by Dishonored, actually, to be honest, because they Dishonored also very clearly lays out what the consequences of your actions are.
0: Yeah, and you have the different little cutscenes or the little moments that you stumble upon that are different depending on how how much chaos you bring into the world.
1: (laughs) Exactly, and so I, you know, we are we are just we literally just passed that, and but again, I'm gonna hope that I can show like they also ended up burning down the hideout, and so. I'm going to try and show what, like, I am I still have to come up with it, but I'm going to try and find a way that them burning down the hideout has a very tangible effect on the world very clearly. Sure.
0: Yeah, that, that makes a ton of sense. Do you know what, do you have an idea of what that consequence is going to be or not yet?
1: I had some ideas. One of them was, you know, so I asked myself, what's going to happen? What would have happened if they'd not burned it down versus if they had? And I said to myself, well, if they hadn't burned it down and they just basically killed or made everyone else flee, then someone else moves into the house, right? It's just this big mansion out in the middle of a field that's in a very advantageous position compared to Phandalin. And so I, one idea was just make it clear that there's like another bandit, you know, another like group of bandits that tried to move in after the red brands were kind of taken down, but they don't have a base, something like that. Sure. um they don't have a cool big stronghold they just have a really dinky campsite outside of the town and have them complain about how they wish they could move into the mansion but it's all burnt down something like that <laughs> um so we are getting about to time here
0: i think that i could probably talk to you for like four hours <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah this has been a great chat, man
0: thanks for listening to this week's episode of the dungeon masters toolkit podcast You can find links to all of the products and resources that we talked about on the show in the show notes. And if you'd like to join the community or find out how to be on the show, check out our subreddit or
1: join us in our Discord server.